Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flooded flood surrounded me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. And at the root of the mountains, I went down to the lands whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Undoubtedly, beginning at this point, all of us are saying, what in the world is going on? We are currently looking at the book of Jonah together here on Sunday morning. Jonah, who was a prophet of God at the time of 760 BC, he was a prophet in Israel, and Israel was experiencing a great deal of prosperity. They were experiencing a great deal of, uh, of wealth. They were experiencing a great deal of military advancement, even though they were under an incredibly evil king named Jeroboam II. And yet the prophets in whom God chose to speak to his people on his behalf, the prophet Jonah, the prophet Amos, and the prophet Hosea, all the books found in the book of 12 of the Old Testament, that is a section of the Old Testament that contained 12 letters from 12 minor prophets. The prophets knew that though Israel was experiencing great blessings, the actual nation itself spiritually was on the decline. And it did not appear that that decline was going to cease anytime soon. The loyalty of the people were greatly divided, meaning that they would worship God in a token fashion through the feasts and sacrifices in which they were required to provide God at certain times of the year. But at other times, they were more to all too willing, I should say, to worship the pagan gods around Israel and therefore showing a, uh, a duality in loyalty. And it is something that God prohibited and rebuked them for. And you specifically see this in the writings of the book of Hosea. But Jonah at this time was one of the faithful prophets at that time. And God decided to commission Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh in chapter 1. And as he was called to go to the city of Nineveh, the largest city at that time, the city was home to the Assyrian Empire, 
who had been used by God in numerous occasions to come and to correct and to judge his people for their disobedience towards their God. And God said to Jonah, Jonah, I'd like you to go over to Nineveh and to proclaim to them that my judgment is about to fall upon them. And in that declaration, there was the uh, anticipated uh, pause in hopes that Nineveh would repent of their sin and get right with God, and therefore the judgment would be spared. But Jonah wanted nothing to do with what God was asking him to do. Instead of being obedient and making his way to Nineveh in chapter 1 of Jonah, Jonah hightails it out of there, catches a ship to the place called Tarshish, which was a southern seaport at that time at the uh, southern half of Spain. He went in the absolute opposite direction, trying to escape, as the text tells us, the presence of God. He wanted nothing to do with this commission. Up until this time, Jonah had been faithful, according to the book of First and Second Kings, to all that God had asked him to do. But now, for some reason, Jonah wants nothing to do with what God wants him to do. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, I'm out of here. Pays his fare, gets on the ship, starts making his way to Tarshish, completely in the opposite direction. God says, okay, you think you're going to get away that easily. The Bible tells us that God created a, a storm that came and started to beat against the ship to slow its progress and to uh, not allow it to proceed to where it was scheduled to go. And it says to us that the sailors in that ship, the mariners of the ship, started uh, pleading to their gods, asking which god was angry with them, for they believed at that time the god in whom controlled the sea was the superior god to all gods that existed. And so they didn't know which god was responsible for this uh, storm coming against them so fiercely to the point where they almost, uh, it almost broke the boat up. And so as the mariners are crying out to their God, the captain begins to run through the ship and says, okay, wait a minute, there's this guy downstairs that's with us, he's sleeping. Let's go find out if he's the reason for this problem. So he goes down there and he goes, hey, you, yeah, you sleeper. That's what he calls him, a sleeper. The Bible uses bad names. Sleeper. What are you doing? Why don't you get up here and call out to your God and maybe he'll hear us and he'll spare us. Jonah's like, no, not going to go. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's my fault. So the sailors wanted to confirm that. They cast lots. The lots fell on Jonah. They now knew that it was Jonah's fault. And they're like, who are you, by the way? And why are you sleeping in the bottom of our boat? Well, my name is Jonah. I'm a prophet of the Most High God. And he's the God over all creation. He's the God Most High. And I am running from him. Okay, let me get this straight. Everything was cool until you decided to run from your God. And now we're all in trouble because of it. Yep, that's pretty much it. All right, well, what can we do to save ourselves? And Jonah says, just throw me overboard. Just get rid of me. I'd rather die. I'm not going to Nineveh. 
Now, at this point, we don't know why he's not willing to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the largest city. It was a three-day walk from one side of the city to the other. The wall around Nineveh was 60 miles in circumference. The largest city at the time. They were known for evil. The prophet Nahum in the Old Testament tells us how evil and wicked these people were. To be cruel to their prisoners of war, they would remove the lips of their prisoners so they could not eat or drink. And then they would parade their prisoners through the streets of the city. But it doesn't appear that the size of the city or the evil of the city is what caused uh, Jonah to fear to go to them. And it didn't seem to hinder him to go to them. It appears that Jonah, and we'll learn this as we continue on in the book, is more afraid that they're going to find forgiveness in God. For Jonah had a fear of forgiveness. How is that possible? Well, I've discovered that the Bible clearly shows and demonstrates that there are people who are afraid of forgiveness. Some of those people are people who have become so comfortable in their unforgiveness that they've actually created an identity for themselves. You know how people, when they want to gather a group together, they'll find someone and they'll say, hey, let's all be friends because we all hate the same person. Hey, that sounds good. Let's go out and go to the movies and talk about how much we hate so-and-so. Pretty lousy identity, right? But many find their identity and find a, uh, a cohesiveness and a consensus among those in whom they've chosen to hate or to unforgive. There are others who simply just don't want to go through the reconciliation process. I don't want to have to deal with trying to mend this relationship, so I'm going to harbor my unforgiveness, and I'm going to let it remain because I feel justified in it. I don't really want to work through the process of it, uh, of forgiving them, so I'm just not going to do it. And lastly, we find, as in Jonah's case, he knew that the forgiveness of the Ninevites was going to cause God to truly examine and to judge the sin of his own people. If the Ninevites were willing to repent of their evil and Israel wasn't willing to repent of their evil, it's even going to make them look all the worse. So he had a fear of forgiveness. And this morning, we pick it up live from the belly of the great fish. We again join Jonah as he sits there and waits for his fate to be sealed. In verse 17 of chapter 1, as the sailors finally capitulated and threw Jonah overboard, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I think before we go any further, some may say, all right, now let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Do you honestly believe that God appointed, and the word prepared is even better in the English, a large fish to swallow Jonah while Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the sea to preserve him and to once again use it as an instrument of salvation for him and held him in his stomach for three days and three nights? Do you honestly believe that happened? Yes, I do. In fact, 
The reason I believe it is because of the authority of the person who confirmed it as a historical fact. And that person was none other than the person Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ confirmed that this was a historical fact in, God, in the Matthew of, uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. When challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus answered that, him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So the scribes and the Pharisees are coming to Jesus asking for a sign. But he answered them, and he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what was that sign? Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the Greek construction, it is a parallel construction in the Greek. Just as Jesus Christ would literally be three days and three nights in his burial, but between his crucifixion and resurrection, a a legitimate event that took place, he is paralleling it with another historical, literal event. Not an allegory, not some symbolism, but an actual event that took place. This is a very common Greek literary uh, construction. One historical effect paralleled with another historical effect. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights, so shall I be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So therefore, I do believe that this is a historical fact based on the authority of Jesus. But it's also based on the fact that I believe that God can do anything that God wanted to do. What, how hard is it for God to create, get a fish to go swallow Jonah? Think about it for a moment. What's too difficult for your God to do? God could have prepared a nuclear submarine at that time to come and pick up Jonah. He could have created the Starship Enterprise, right? To come and to pick up Jonah. What is too difficult for God to do? I say it this way, that if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, for God uh, created the heavens and the earth, you can believe any verse in the Bible if you believe that verse. So yes, I believe this was a historical fact confirmed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, it says that he's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Then when we come to chapter 2, it starts with the word then. The word then gives me the understanding that he was there three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. Then he decided to cry out to God. I'm telling you, this was one of the longest timeouts I've ever seen in the Bible sitting in this great fish. And we don't know if it was a whale. We don't know what type of fish it was. So let's not speculate. It could have been a megalodon. You know, the meg is coming back. You know, we don't know what it was. We don't know what God used as an instrument of his uh, salvation in the life of Jonah. But if it was a whale, per se, being a mammal, it would have been 98 degrees Fahrenheit with inside the stomach of that whale. The humidity would have been a killer to his hair. I mean, just overwhelming. 
sitting there three days and three nights in the gastral juices of the stomach. Can you imagine that? You know, as the whale moved through the ocean being slapped in the face with fish as he's in there. And yet, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not doing it. My wife's a preschool teacher, and I always look forward to her coming home at the end of the day. She always has some of the best stories about the kids of her class, fun, silly stories about the kids. And every year, she always gets that one kid that the 12-hour timeout is just not long enough for. They'll just sit there stubbornly, refusing to do what is right. Now, let's understand that this isn't someone opposed to God. This isn't someone who is an agnostic or an atheist. This is God's prophet saying, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. You know, sometimes we can be the most stubborn, ordinary, ordinary people when it comes to God. And yet God loves us, patient with us, working in us, because he loves us too much to leave us the way he, he found us. He wants to change our attitudes of our heart. He wants us to come to a place where we are willing to surrender all and submit all onto him. And the beginning of that process is what we see here in chapter 2. The beginning of this process is called brokenness before God. This is what God needed to do in the life of Jonah to bring Jonah to a place of brokenness before him. Now, what do I mean when I talk about brokenness before God? When you think of something broken, you think of something that is no longer able to be used in its optimal capacity, don't you? If you receive a toy at Christmas time, so let's say a Corvette, I'm still pushing for that. And all of a sudden you get one, but it's broken. You say, oh, well, what good is that Corvette to me? But in the hands of God, realize that God needs to bring us to a place of brokenness before we become truly optimally useful for God to use for his glory. God's got to bring us past our own pride often, our own stubbornness, our unwillingness to submit our unwillingness to allow God to have complete control of our lives in every aspect, in every regard. Brokenness is the pavement that leads us to repentance. Brokenness is the beginning. Brokenness is a work of God in the life of one of his followers that allows that individual to come to a place of surrender, to come to a place of repentance, Brokenness allows God then to take control and allow that individual to truly glorify God as God is meant to be glorified. You know, as long as we can take credit for things happening in and through our lives, we will take credit for things happening in and through our lives. But the moment God brings us to a place of brokenness, we then see and all those around us then see that it is no longer I, but it is God who's working through me for the purposes of his glory. He had to bring Jonah to a place of brokenness. 
It is a work of God where God will bring about circumstances in the life of one who believes in him that are difficult, challenging, and are perfectly prescribed to break the areas of personal self-reliance within our lives to allow us, therefore, to become completely and utterly dependent on God. It's like, a, it's like a, a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon perfectly maneuvering to bring about the health of the individual the way that individual is meant to be healthy. And God will break often those that he uses greatly for his purpose. I think of Moses. When Moses first realized who God was calling him to be, he tried to do it in the energy of his flesh by killing one of the Roman guards and uh, simply try to break up a fight between two Hebrew individuals. And as a result, he failed miserably. God then ba- God had him banished for 40 years. He went from 40 to 80 years old. And then at 80 years old, God commissioned him to go back. At that point, Moses was no longer nearly as confident in, of, in and of himself and said, Lord, I can't speak right. I can't do these things right and so forth. See, Moses needed to be broken before God before God could use him greatly for his glory and his purposes. I think of Jacob. Jacob was the master of self-reliance until one day the Lord met him at night, wrestled with him, threw his hip out of socket so he could no longer run away from his brother Esau but required him to confront the reality of the need before him. He needed to be broken before God. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament had to be knocked off his high horse before he could be useful for the purposes of God. God often has to break us before he uses us greatly. This breaking is not a detrimental thing. It is a required aspect to bring us into the health in which God has required of us as individuals who follow him. In Israel, one of the most common uh, occupations was that of a shepherd. And as the shepherds would, of course, keep their flocks of sheep on the hillsides, they undoubtedly always had that one that was stubborn beyond all get out. If they were, the shepherd were to go right, he'd go left. If the shepherd would go forward, he stayed behind. If the shepherd said stop, you know that he ran ahead. So what was the shepherd to do? Because the shepherd knew that that sheep alone by himself was in a very vulnerable position before different predators that could come about. In the Hebrew culture, what would happen is the shepherd would take that lamb, break its little leg, tend his little leg, bound it up, and then carried that sheep on his back until that lamb was perfectly healthy. And after the leg had healed, he would then unmend it, and that sheep would never lead the side of the shepherd again. Jonah needed to be broken by God. He needed to come to a place where he was willing to no longer rely upon himself no longer take things upon himself. Look at his own personal self-reliance. One said, brokenness means having no plans, no time, no possessions, no money, no life of my own. It is to be crucified with Christ. 
It is a consent yielding ourselves to God. We must seek it, but it is only God who can give it. And as He gives it, He will give it and bless us for it. And as we continue, we find that Jonah has now come to that place. In fact, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 51:17, "The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." It means broken of pride, broken of self-independence, broken of self-reliance, broken of self-accomplishment, and bringing that individual to a complete and utter dependency upon God. And one wrote, he said, yet even in the New Testament, a believer must have a spirit broken of all self-assertion. He must acknowledge his need before God to find spiritual renewal and spiritual cleansing. And that's where we come to this morning. Then Jonah, verse 1 of chapter 2, then prayed to the Lord his God and from the belly of the fish saying, we are going to discover that there are five things that Jonah will now see in his brokenness that he couldn't see previously. In his stubbornness, in his position of rebellion against God, in his uh, self-reliance and his own personal self-determination. The brokenness brings about a clarity of sight, allows us a true perspective upon our situation. And notice that the beginning of this perspective is calling out to God for a sense, in a sense of urgency. He says, I call out to the Lord out of my distress. If you have the old King James, new King James, it's out of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cry, and you heard my voice. This brokenness had come now to the point that allowed him to cry out to God earnestly with urgency. Sincerely asking God, crying out for help in his time of need. He was asking God and going only to God, for only God could deliver him from his present circumstances. And he knew the heart of God. For we're going to discover that in this prayer there are several references to the Psalms. Jonah knew the word of God and therefore knew the heart of God. And knowing the heart of God, Jonah was convinced that God would hear him even in his place of distress, even in the place of the belly of this great fish, even in this particular circumstance, he, God was going to hear him. He says, God, I now cry out to you. I have nowhere else to go, and I'm confident that you will hear me. It is amazing to me how parents are so attentive to their children. I was one of those kids growing up that every time my family went to a department store, and at that time, we went to a department store called Kmart. Do you guys remember Kmart? Before the Walmarts, before the Venture, before the Zayers, there was this land called Kmart. And I was notorious for getting lost in Kmart to the point that my father always had to say that if you get lost, here's where I want you to go. 
Well, when you're, ki- when you're a little kid and you're lost, you forget all rationale. You just start screaming. And I used to start screaming like a little girl, you know? And it, did, it was so amazing. It didn't matter. I would just say, Dad, Dad, I'm lost. And guess where? He would come out of nowhere, come out between the racks of clothes. There was my dad, you know? All of a sudden, he'd swoop down from the ceiling. There was my dad, you know? He'd come running, and that was a sight, just watching my dad run. He'd come running down the aisle, and he'd just grab me. And as a kid, I always had this confidence that when I cried out for mom and dad, they would be there in my time of need. And Jonah had that confidence in God the Father, that God would be there in his time of need. And even though I'm in this place, I am going to cry out to God. Number one, brokenness will lead us to cry out to God in sincerity and urgency for help in our time of need. Number two, we're going to see what God is doing. Look at me in verses three and four. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves billowed past over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight yet again, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Well, if you read chapter one, it wasn't God who threw him into the sea. It was the sailors, right? But now Jonah sees things clearly. God, this was the beginning of your correction in my life. You have brought me to this place. You have brought me to these circumstances, Lord. This isn't a coincidence. It isn't an accident. God, you have brought me here to try to get my attention. This is the process in which you have prescribed to break me of myself. God, I see that it was you who brought me to this place. I see, Lord, now, and I understand that your hands are in control of all of these things. Going back to my dad, my dad, you know, I knew that he was the enforcer in our home. My mom would just have to say, wait till your dad gets home to bring about the fear of the father in our home. And my dad, you know, he was governed by a principle of spankings. But, you know, even though I got spanked uh, abundantly, Um, And I think there were some times my dad just spanked me just in case there were things they missed. Um, But I always knew that he wasn't hurting me. He was simply correcting me. I could always tell. I knew that from my dad. Even though in that most difficult point of being spanked, that he loved me. And he was doing it for my betterment and not for my harm. Jonah is saying, God, you've brought me here into the belly of this great fish for the purpose of breaking me. And I don't understand all of it. But what I do understand is that you are chastening me as a parent chastens a child. See, God chastens those in whom he loves because he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. We find that in the book of Hebrews. And if you would turn there with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like to show you, starting in verse 5, that there are many different ways we can respond to the chastening of God as individuals. We'll read it together and then we'll look at these different points together quickly. Notice with me that in this, the writer of Hebrew tells us very clearly that it is God who, 
who chastens those in whom he loves. If we begin in verse 5 of chapter 12, we read, Have you forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons or daughters? My sons or daughters do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one in whom he what? Loves. Our children certainly need, as parents, affirmation when they do something well and good. But our children also need from us as parents discipline. If we choose not to discipline our children as parents, we are doing them a disservice. For if God feels that discipline is necessary for his kids, then discipline is necessary for our kids. And I thank now my dad for the discipline in which he rendered towards me. I have a wonderful relationship with my father, who, by the way, this year will be turning 90 years old. And I want to let you guys know that he is now almost to the end of his eighth time reading through the entire Bible. Please pray for him. He's right there. He's right there. I love my dad for many different reasons. But I also, I understood growing up that the discipline in which he provided was for my benefit. And here we see in verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son by doing so. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly father who disciplines us and we respect them for it. Shall we not much more subject to the father of spirits, that is the father of God, and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Number one in verse five, we can despise or regard lightly the discipline of God in our lives, not appreciate it, not see it for what it is. Number two, we can grow weary, that is, discouraged by the discipline of God within our life. Verse 9 tells us we can resist the discipline and invite a stronger discipline within our life. Verse 7, we can submit to the Father and mature in faith and love by understanding and submitting to the discipline that He exercises towards us. Discipline is to the believer what exercise and training is to the athlete. Verse 11, understand its role and purpose within our life. And it enables us to run the race with endurance and to reach the goal that God has for us. The discipline of God. Jonah now saw what God was doing clearly within his life. Turning back to Jonah with me in verse 5 or 6, we come to the third realization that we'll come to know through our brokenness, and that is God will save us. Verse 5, For the water closes in over me to take my life. The deep surrounds me. 
weeds are wrapped about my head. And the roots of the mountains, that is the moorings of the mountains, the bottoms of the mountains found in the depths of the sea. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. As he was sinking, he felt that it was closing in upon him for no escape and no, no release. Yet, he says, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Yet you, Lord, brought my life up from the pit. In chapter 1, we saw that every decision that Jonah made to depart from the presence of God led him in a downward trajectory. He went down to Joppa. He he went down to the belly of the ship. He went down to the lower parts of the earth. He went down into the belly of the whale. He was in a downward trajectory. He was going down away from God in his stubborn rebellion against God. And now God is drawing him up, lifting him up once again. This statement that begins with the word yet is one of the glorious but God statements of the Bible. In my despair, God saved me. God, I was in falling and I was uh, falling into despair and into depression, but God, it says. And these buts God statements are found through all the Bible. Let me give you some to show you. For example, Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. When it came to Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The psalmist David wrote when he said, but God will ransom my soul from the power of shield. Shield was the place of the undercavern. This is where the Jewish people expected to remain in separation from God until a redeemer was provided for them. For he will receive me, Selah or amen. But even Paul writes in Romans when he says, but God shows his love for us that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And my personal favor is found in Ephesians chapters 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his glory and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I was sinking. I was falling. I was in a place of no return. But God saved me. But God When you find yourself in a place of no hope, I want you just to think of those two words, but God. And what are you surrounded by at that particular moment that has led you to a place of no hope that but God cannot solve? But God. There's nothing too great for him. I'm sorry, you have a serious illness, but God. You don't have the money to pay your bills, but God. You're afraid of the upcoming election, but God. 
but God. That was the heart of Jonah. Yet God stepped in. He was convinced that God would save him. When Peter got out of the boat, summoned by the Lord, as Peter saw the Lord walking on the water, the storm was raging. The Lord called out to Peter and said, Peter, come to me. So Peter got out of the boat and he was walking above the waves, it said, until he got his eyes off of the Lord onto the waves and he began to sink. But then the Bible says that Peter reached up only to discover that the Lord was reaching down for him. But God saved me. You asked me to come, but God, I took my eyes off of you, but God, and he saved him. Greatest act of grace that there is, but God. Number four, in verse seven, we'll find that we'll truly remember the Lord. Look with me, verse seven of Jonah. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to your holy temple. This word remembers means I acted on the basis of my commitment to you. I remembered the covenant relationship that I had with you and I came back to that reality that you had me more securely than I had you. When I am faithless, he is faithful. When I am weak, he is strong. I'm in the Father's hands and nothing shall ever take me out of the Father's hands. And even when I doubt that, and even when I rebel, and even when I try to jump out of those hands, I remember that I am in those hands. I'm recalling, I remember now the the reality that I'm in a relationship with God, and He'll never leave me, He'll never forsake me, He'll never abandon me. And then He talks about the Holy Temple. When the temple was constructed uh, constructed by Solomon, a a swearing ceremony was given in 1 Kings 8, 38 through 40. And the psalmist tells us of the holy temple that is in heaven at the Lord's throne. In Psalm eleven four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his, ear, his eyelids test the children of man. When Solomon created the temple here on the earth, he then said to those who were around him, whatever prayer... Whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive the act and render to each of those whose heart you know according to all of his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, Solomon says concerning a God that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land in which you gave to their fathers. He therefore remembered the Lord. And brokenness will lead us to that memory of knowing that I am in relationship with God. And lastly, we come to verses 8 and 9, where we once again walk with the Lord instead of running from Him as Jonah was. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Idolatry is a sin that we don't truly consider in the United States as serious any longer. Mainly because we don't realize what it is. One person said it this way so eloquently, so simply, but completely profound. An idol in your life is anything that you love more than God. Simply said, 
An idol in your life is anything that you love more than God. The number one idol in people's lives today is they themselves. And to abandon idolatry is to turn from thyself and then put your eyes, hope, and dependency to po- totally upon God. But that sounds really radical, Pastor. It is. But how radical was it what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? Does he have not the right now to ask for all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? And he asks us to love him through those things. He is saying here that when I was in, my, I was in God's way, he's saying, I was the idol. I was the one who thought I knew better. I was the one that wanted to run from Nineveh. I was the one who charted this course and put all these people in harm's way. And now I find myself here suffocating in the belly of this great fish. I severed myself from the steadfast love and mercy of God. It's my fault. Lord, I'm not going to, I'm getting out of your way. I'm taking this idol out of my life. And then he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you And what I have vowed, I will pay. And here's the heart of the entire book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Warren Worsby wrote, Jonah couldn't save himself and nobody on earth could save him, but the Lord could do it. For salvation is of the Lord. This is a quotation from the Psalms and it is a central declaration in the book. It is also the central theme of the Bible. How wise of Jonah to memorize the word of God because being able to quote the scriptures, especially the book of Psalms, gave him light in the darkness in which he found himself and hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. Brokenness leads to repentance. Brokenness is a work of God in the individual's life where God brings about circumstances specifically prescribed to deal with those areas that are not in compliance with that of God or His Word. These are not to harm you, they are to help you. They are not to discourage you, they are to discipline you, to bring you to, into that place of repentance, dealing with those areas of your life that God therefore may work in and through you to do all that He desires to do. Brokenness is a part of our Christian faith. It's not something that should be avoided. It is something that needs to be embraced. And some of you today might find yourself in a place of discipline. And maybe up until now, you didn't recognize it as that. You just thought everything was going the wrong way or sideways within your life as a Christian. But maybe God's trying to get your attention today. Maybe God's saying, hey, you're going off a little bit and I love you too much to leave you to continue in that direction. I'm trying to bring you back straight on course. Now, does that mean straight on course is going to be smooth, happy sailing? No. But at least you won't be resisting the hand of God within your life. To know that God is working in a person's life is often a result of spending time with God each and every day in prayer and in his word. Having a sensitivity to God to know that he is working in your life. But if he is working in your life, that shows you one of two things. Number one, you are his. You have been adopted by him. 
And number two, he loves you because he chastens those in whom he loves. Now, I wish I could tell you that Jonah got it right from this point going forward. But sometimes we see that repentance is a process within a person's life. And we're going to see that in chapters three and four as we continue on in our study together. This week, I would encourage you to take a look at Luke 15, starting in verse 12. It's the story of the prodigal son. And in verse 17, there are these famous words. He finally came to himself. God brought him to a place of brokenness in his own particular life. And read it for yourself. And see how it was the catalyst that brought this young man back to his father. And then I want you to note specifically how the father responded to the one who came back. To know the heart of our God. And we conclude Jonah chapter 2 on this fine note. And the Lord spoke to the fish. It's pretty sad when the fish is more obedient than we are. And it vomited, yuck, Jonah out upon the dry land. And that's where we'll leave it for today. A fish vomiting Jonah out onto dry land. God bless you with vomit. No. Um, Read ahead and we'll continue on next week as we look at Jonah chapter 3. And often when God brings us back around, he brings us to that place where we departed from initially. In fact, just look with me in chapter 3. You put your Bibles away way too quick. If you have, just repent. Look at this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Arise and go to Nineveh. All right, Jonah, have you had enough? Now arise and go to Nineveh. Let's see what Jonah does with that next week together. 